Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The four living creatures say this day and night. We're also told this in Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and is or who was and is and is to come. The whole earth is filled with his glory, Isaiah says. Verse 1 of that song, which Jessica, you just sang it so beautifully well. That was just incredible. Verse 1, it says, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. 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 Who is that? The Lamb of God. Who is this? Who's the Lamb of God? Jesus. He's the perfect Lamb of God. He was sacrificed for our sins. John tells us that he takes away our sins. We're going to talk about that sacrifice this morning as we conclude chapter 19 from the book of John. If you have your Bibles with you today, I ask you to pull them out. Go ahead and open them up to the book of John. We're going to spend most of our time there. It's all about the crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus is the defining moment in history. His death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. You know, the cross, it's, it's all around us. It really is. Every weekend, we sing these beautiful songs about the cross. We sing about the wonder of the cross and the beauty of the cross. We wear necklaces. We get tattoos. A friend of mine showed me his burn scar. It's something they're doing these days where you, like, burn things into your arm so you can have it permanently on your arm. I don't get it, but he had two crosses. Um, we... Uh, have it in our living rooms. Growing up as a kid, we had it in our main bathroom, a picture of the cross. I had them put it up today. We have this nice replica of the cross for, for this morning. Why? Because the reality is what Jesus has done for us on the cross is beyond our comprehension. That's how I feel about it. We don't know how to handle it, and we don't know how to express it. So we try, but in a lot of ways, we really don't know how to express the cross. In full honesty, I've been a Christian for some time now. And I feel as though I am still just beginning to understand the significance of that cross. As I prepared this message, it was very overwhelming for me to think about what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And I want to remind us today that when we're celebrating, when we're remembering and acknowledging the cross, we're not just remembering these two beams of wood. We're acknowledging, we're remembering the man who died on those two pieces of wood. For it isn't the cross that is sacred. But it is the love of God on display through the death of his son who laid down his life for the ransom of many. It reminds me of the old hymn that we sing sometimes, the old rugged cross. One of the verses says, in that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross, Jesus suffered and he died to pardon and sanctify me. Would you pray with me? Lord, as I stand up here this morning, I am overwhelmed by you, God. I am overwhelmed by your presence. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, that as a four-square church, we believe that you are alive and well, and that your spirit is alive and well in us right now. And we don't even have to wait until a message for you to speak to us, Lord, for you to transform us, and for you to change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I, I just pray right now, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus, that we wouldn't wait until point two or point three or point four or till the closing song or till we get home to be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
that you would work on us this very moment, Jesus. Have your way in us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so it should be on the screen. It's a long passage. Chapter 19, verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him, two others. One on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. If you have your Bibles, keep it open to that passage. Actually, uh, verses 28 through 30, I'm going to reread those uh, passages and those scriptures several times. Today's discussion is all about the death of Jesus, the death of the Lamb of God who died according to the will of the Father, And because of the Father's love for you and for me. If the death of Jesus seems a little bit too heavy for you today, I really don't know what to tell you. I'm not going to apologize. His death and resurrection three days later is the basis for our faith. We would not be called Christians without it. Scripture tells us that because of the cross, we have life. We have salvation because of the cross. We have forgiveness of sins. We now have peace with God. We have been pardoned, sanctified, justified by the shed blood of the Lamb. I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I have found freedom in the cross. Hallelujah. Freedom from my worry. Freedom from my fear of death. I am even victorious in death, for Jesus conquered death. The scriptures say death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death? Is your sting on the cross? Jesus offered a sacrifice to God, his perfect life for us, because we could not offer a perfect life on our own. As a four squared church, it is actually the fourth point of our declaration of faith. If you ever wondered what four squared believes in, well, here you go. I'm going to read it. Number four, it's called the plan of redemption. It's really good. Listen up. We believe. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the just for the unjust, 
Freely and by divine appointment of the Father, taking the sinner's place, bearing his sins, receiving his condemnation, dying his death, fully paying his penalty, and signing with Jesus' blood the pardon of everyone who should believe upon him, that upon simple faith and acceptance of the atonement purchased on Mount Calvary, the vilest sinner may be cleansed of his iniquities and made whiter than driven snow. Just in case you wondered what we believe. Hallelujah. Jesus' death and his resurrection is what makes Jesus, Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today, his death. And if we're talking about his death today, you can guess what we're talking about next Sunday. It's going to be good. So let's get right into it. On your outline, the death of Jesus was a shameful death. Number one, it was a shameful death. Death by crucifixion. Cicero records that it is the most cruel and disgusting penalty, the most extreme penalty. Josephus, who certainly witnessed enough crucifixions himself, called it the most wretched of deaths. Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they learned it from the Greeks in Carthage after conquering the Greeks. Now, no Roman citizen would have been crucified unless committing high crime against Caesar. Crucifixion was meant for the worst of society, for the rebellious foreigners, for military enemies, for violent criminals, for robbers, and for slaves. The Greek historian Appian, he tells us that when the slave rebellion of Spartacus was crushed, and you guys remember Spartacus, right? Pretty cool dude. He was the former gladiator. He gets a bunch of slaves to fight with him. They're fighting and win all these battles. You love it, right? But then he dies. And when he dies, he has 6,000 of his slave prisoners arrested. And uh, the Roman general Crassus, had those 6,000 slaves crucified along a stretch of the Appian Way, the main road leading into Rome. Josephus, he tells us that when uh, the Romans were swarming Jerusalem, besieging uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus at one point was crucifying 500 or more Jews a day. It is a horrible death. And without going into too much detail, you'd be flogged, you'd be scourged resulting in deep wounds, exposed flesh, a tremendous loss of blood. In fact, several uh, people, people would not oftentimes make it through the flogging because of this loss of blood. You were made to carry your own cross. It probably wasn't the whole cross. It was probably just the cross beam. And you'd carry it on your shoulders. And you'd carry it from the place of your flogging to the place of crucifixion. You'd be tied or nailed to the cross. And you'd hang there. And if you're nailed, you're hanging there. From your wounds until the weight of your own body crushed your lungs to where you could not catch your breath any longer and you'd die of asphyxiation. The Roman philosopher Seneca writes, can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb or letting out his life drop by drop rather than expiring once for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to that accursed tree? Long, sickly, already deformed, swelling from ugly wounds on shoulders and chest and drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn out agony. He would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross. And it was a shameful death, to be sure. You know, as you and I look at the guillotine, maybe the noose, the electric chair, when we look at those forms of death, there is a certain degree of dishonor to those deaths. What the culture would see in the cross in Jesus's time, it would be much, much worse. We really do not understand or appreciate today the shame involved 
in this kind of death. Peter, Jesus' disciples, he writes in 1 Peter, quoting the prophet Isaiah, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness, or live for righteousness. Again, quoting Isaiah, By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Listen up for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus, in that passage, trusting in and knowing the honor and the joy set before him, he endured the most severe sufferings to which the human body could ever be subjected to and the form of death, which is regarded to be most shameful. He has done that for you and me on the cross. Number two, it was a voluntary death. I have now discussed this in length over the last three weeks. If you've been coming to church, I probably sound like a broken record. Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. He had come to this earth to do the will of the Father. And we have seen this example again and again and again, right? From the garden to his interrogations, to his questionings, to his trial before Pontius Pilate. And now in his death, he willingly laid down his life. For you and me. And we see it is a mission of obedience and love. It is the passion of Christ. Jesus, he was absolutely dedicated to accomplishing all the requirements that were foretold by prophecies and also dedicated to accomplishing the will of his father. Do you remember early in the book of Matthew, the devil tempts Jesus. The devil offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in exchange for what? For his worship. And this offer, I believe, it, it, it represented a way for Jesus to establish his kingdom on the earth without the cross. Kind of looks like an easy shortcut. But Jesus, he is a passionate fellow. He is passionate to accomplish the exact plan of his father. And so what does he do? He rejects the devil's offer. He is following the path laid out by his father. As Jesus is dying, going back to that passage, chapter 19, verses 28 30, John writes, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Listen up with that. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. John does not say that Jesus died and then he slumped over, but rather he bowed his head. An attitude of submission. And then he gave up his spirit. Tertullian, an early Christian writer, he says, at his own free will, he with a word dismissed from him his spirit. Willingly laid down his life. Two Sundays ago, we talked about the rejection of Jesus as the truth. Do you remember that? That both Jew and Gentile had rejected Jesus as the truth. Last weekend, we talked about the fact that they had rejected him as the king. Both Jew and Gentile rejecting Jesus as the king. In today's passage, I want us to grasp and be amazed 
by this obedient son who is submissive to the father, who is showing himself, I believe, to be the true king. He is confirming that message of the sign that was posted above his head through his voluntary death. Jesus is once again establishing his kingdom. All right. Number three, it was a predicted death, predicted death. In Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, which I highly recommend. How many of you have ever read The Case for Christ? It's maybe a little bit older now, but really, I would just encourage you to dive into that book. He tells us that there are over 40 prophecies concerning the Messiah and Jesus fulfills every one. I love that. I love that Jesus fulfills scripture after scripture after scripture. What is scripture? Scripture, it expresses God's plan for creation. It expresses God's plan for redemption. Scripture expresses God's will. We are told in the book of John that Jesus has come to the earth to do what? To do the will of the Father. Jesus is submissive to the Father's will. Scripture reveals the will of the Father, so in turn, Jesus' actions fulfill Scripture. I hope I, I, I conveyed that well enough. His actions have to fulfill Scripture. Do you understand that? Because Jesus and Scripture, they flow from the same source. Jesus has to fulfill Scripture. And we see that again and again and again. If you want to be encouraged, go on to Google, type in, I don't know, prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. And it is incredible. I am always amazed as I read this long list of prophecies that were fulfilled during Jesus' time on this earth. Without trying to cover all of them this morning, I'm not. I want to I go through a couple. I want to go through a couple. We're told that when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. The undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Hey, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. It said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Who said this? Who said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment? Anybody know it's from the Old Testament? King David. What is King David, Alex? Psalm 22. Psalm 22, it's all about the suffering of a king, King David. David's sufferings typify the far greater sufferings of Christ that he had bear in his crucifixion. It's actually Psalm 22, verse 18. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all make this connection of the garments to Psalm 22. They also make another connection to Psalm 22, which I want to share with you. Uh, King David, at the very beginning of that psalm, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who else says this? Jesus. That's right, Jesus, while on the cross. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, the righteous king who suffers is now embodied in Jesus. In verse 28, which we've already, already read several times, I want to read it again. We are told that later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. John notes that Jesus says, I am thirsty in order to fulfill scripture. Again, scripture reveals God's will. And Jesus is perfectly accomplishing his father's will. The text he echoes here 
comes from a couple of places. Psalm 22, again, which says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And Psalm 69, 21, another passage featuring King David as this suffering king who says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. These passages, again, bear witness to Jesus' identity, I believe, as king. And before I move on, on this issue of thirst, I want you to take notice of the sequence of events. He says he is thirsty. He's offered the wine vinegar. He says it is finished and he dies. He says, I'm thirsty. He's offered the wine vinegar. He says it is finished and he dies. About a year ago, somewhere around a year ago, I preached on John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus had sent off his disciples, right, to get some food. They come back with some food, exactly what he had told them to do. But then he doesn't eat, right? They go, Rabbi, why don't you eat something? And this is his response to his disciples. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food is to do the will of the Father. Later at the garden, when Jesus is arrested, he tells Peter, Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Hunger and thirst. They are images for us to see Jesus' great desire that he has to fulfill the Father's will. This cup that Jesus has to drink, we as Christians understand that it's a cup of wrath and of suffering. And it just kind of feels to me that by taking this drink of the wine vinegar, he is marking the completion of this experience. The phrase, I am thirsty, is showing Jesus' commitment to obeying God's will. That the Son of Man must suffer many things. He is now the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The work he has come to this earth to finish, well, guess what? It is complete. He has done it. It is finished. All for the glory of God and the redemption of of you and me. It was a predicted death. I'm just scratching the surface on that one. Again, go on Google. I know there's a lot of bad reasons to go on Google, but this is a great one. It will encourage you. Search prophecies of Jesus fulfilled. It was a substitutionary death. Number four. Kind of feels like a spelling bee on this word. It was a, at least I'd fail. I don't know. It was a substitutionary death. You know, our sinfulness it goes way beyond the bad things that you and I do day to day that seem to be wrong, contrary to the will of God. You know, your sinfulness, it goes way beyond that Jolly Rancher that you stole in third grade from the 7-Eleven. It goes way beyond you, your uh, speeding in the school zone that you did last week. We'll talk about it in heaven. It goes way beyond that. It's much deeper than that. In our sinfulness, there is a barrier between us and God. Because of the fall. We are sick with sin. Born spiritually separated from God. Living lives destined to end in death. All tragic consequences of Adam's rebellion. And there are many results because of the fall. The results of being fallen. And they include guilt and condemnation. Bondage to sin that you could never break free from. God's wrath. Eternal separation from God. Really uplifting things. <laughs> but God had a plan. He had a solution to the problem caused by the fall. And the solution has a name. We all know his name. 
His name is Jesus. He is God the Son. God the Son, Jesus Christ, who came, suffered, and died, a prophesied and predicted death. And with Jesus' death, God demonstrates both his justice in punishing sin and his mercy in forgiving the unjust. See, for God, he is perfectly holy. He is unable to tolerate sin. And so he must punish sin completely and impartially. But because God is perfectly loving, gracious, and merciful, he has also provided a way for humans to escape the penalty of judgment and to be reconciled to God. Justice and mercy, they meet so beautifully at the cross. Here's a phrase for you. You're going to hear this phrase in Christian circles from time to time. I love this phrase. It is substitutionary atonement. Have you ever heard that before? Raise your hand. You ever heard substitutionary atonement? It is a really important phrase for you to understand. To me, it kind of sounds like it should be on Schoolhouse Rocks right next to Conjunction Junction. But um, I'm not going to even sing a song about it. The word atonement, we're going to start there. The word atonement, it comes back from the Old Testament. It refers to the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which required the shedding of blood to obtain forgiveness. Required the shedding of blood to obtain forgiveness. Now, original sin and subsequent sin, it finds a person guilty before a holy God. All of us are found guilty before a holy God. But through the sacrifice of an innocent animal, a person could acknowledge faith in God's provision of a perfect sacrifice by which you could be forgiven and cleansed. This is the sacrificial system. The use of this innocent animal is where we get the idea of substitution. I think that makes sense, right? The sacrificed animal died in the stead of the guilty person, in the stead of you or me. Now, at the very beginning of this message, I quoted a verse from that song. It was the first line of that verse. What was it? It was, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Jesus is the lamb who was slain. He became our sacrifice. Jesus became our substitution. Romans 5 it tells us that Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the one who knew no sin, who became sin, he, he died for us. He died the death that you and I deserved. We're told in the book of Hebrews that he sacrificed for our sins once for all when he offered himself. That by one sacrifice he had made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Substitutionary atonement. Impress your friends. Substitutionary atonement. And and I just want to encourage you, there are tremendous benefits today because of that phrase. I don't want you just to know that phrase to have a bunch of head knowledge. I want you to know that phrase because I want you to recognize the benefits of Jesus Christ and substitutionary atonement. But the benefits of the sacrifice, of his atoning death, they can only be obtained by repentance and by putting our faith in that sacrifice. Well, what are some of the benefits? What are the benefits of repenting and putting your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross? Too numerous to list, right? Far too great that I could ever describe, but I want to say a couple. (laughs) They include a new freedom from sin. A new freedom from sin. Those chains of captivity that you couldn't break free from, they have been broken. You are reconciled with God. You are accepted. You are adopted into his family. You are forgiven of your sins. You have been restored into a right relationship with God. You have eternal life. You have eternal life. Before accepting Jesus' sacrifice, listen up. You are dead. 
Since God is the only source of life, to be separated from God is to be dead. But when you repent and put your faith in what Jesus has done for you on the cross, you receive eternal life, which is a life lived in the presence of God, which begins the moment you accept him on into eternity to be enjoyed forever. Hallelujah. The benefits of accepting Jesus' sacrifice are endless. That was just a short list of all that he's done for you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me and for everybody else in this room. Thank you, Jesus. You died the death that we deserved to die. It's important for every one of us in this room to understand what Jesus' death on the cross means for the world and for us. Have you ever really spent time considering what Jesus has done for you? I mean, really, really pondering how deep the Father's love is for us. That God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ died for you. I hope you do that today before you leave. May this always be a place that you can do that. To spend time, just you and God, saying, God, thank you for the sacrifice of your son. Thank you for sending him to the cross. Thank you for that perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who was slain. I want to close with this. It's the last word spoken by Jesus before he dies. Again, if you have your Bibles open, chapter 19, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. The Greek word here is to die. The word occurs twice in the New Testament. It occurs in John 19, 28 and John 19, 30. The only two places you're going to find it in the New Testament. 19, 28 is translated this. After this, when Jesus knew that all things were now completed to die. In order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Two verses later, he utters the word himself. Then when he received that wine vinegar, that sour wine, Jesus said, it is finished to tell us die. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In New Testament times, this word to tell us die. It would be well known. See, it was written on business documents or receipts. To show, indicating that a bill or a debt had been paid in full. If you had a bill, if you had a debt, this word would be written on the receipt when it was finally paid for. The connection between receipts and what Jesus has done for them on the cross would be very obvious and quite clear to the audience whom John is speaking to and writing to. A Greek-speaking audience. It would be unmistakable, undeniable that Jesus Christ had come to die to pay for their sins. I want you to understand that today. Please understand that some of you are completely weighed down by your sins. You are buried in your sins. You don't have to stay that way. You don't. Jesus wants to set you free. My friends, all of us had a debt. Every one of us. We had a sin debt. But our debt has been paid. Jesus paid it all. Jesus died to pay for your sins. And listen to me carefully. The sins that you've committed, they are not just overlooked. The sins you've committed, they are not just ignored. The sins you've committed have been paid for. 
Jesus became our substitute. He's taken our sin upon himself. And I want you to receive that free gift of life that Jesus offers on the cross. We receive this merciful and grace-filled gift by faith. Repenting of our wicked ways. Believing in what he has done for us. I want that today for you. I want you to receive this free gift of life. It is free to you. But don't ever forget, there was a cost. There was a cost. And it is a debt that Jesus paid in full. Would you pray with me? benefits of the cross doesn't even feel right to say that because you died you gave up your life for me to even think about what it might mean for me just in so many ways it's tough for me to say but the reality is that you did die for me (laughs) you died for everyone in this room So that your Father's will would be accomplished. Because of the Father's great love for us, you die. And the benefit is you. (laughs) That's the amazing thing about the cross. And I just encourage you today, if you're, you're trying to put down a list of all the benefits, just, just strip it away to just one. The benefit is Jesus. The benefit is eternal life. With God. In the presence of God. Hallelujah. And if you have never accepted the benefits of the cross. If you have never repented of your ways. And turned to him. And accepted his atoning sacrifice. I'd love for today to be the day that you'd accept what he has done for you on the cross. I'm not talking about whether you call yourself a Christian or not. When I, I guess what I'm saying is maybe for the first time today you really are just comprehending and understanding what Jesus has done for you. His sacrifice. For the first time experiencing such a great and amazing and awesome love that was demonstrated on the cross. If you want to accept that love, accept that kind of Savior today, Would you just raise your hand really high so that I can see? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. See you, brother.